0: Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. This is your host for this episode, Charlotte Stiadi. I am a visiting fellow from ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore. Today, we will be talking about the Indonesian military's persisting influence and importance in contemporary Indonesian society. The military has always played a vital role in the modern Indonesian nation. Particularly during the New Order era, the military was elevated to having a duifungsi or a dual role of maintaining law and order as well as participating in governance. Yet the military was also guilty of gross human rights abuses and abuse of power. Immediately after the fall of the New Order in 1998, the military was forced to undergo extensive reforms that included the withdrawal of the military from civilian and governmental affairs. In the openness of the reform era, scholars also uncovered historical evidence of the military's role in some of the darkest moments in Indonesia's history, such as the anti-communist killings of 1965 and 66. However, 20 years after the beginning of post-Suharto reforms, analysts are beginning to notice the military's growing influence in the political and civic spheres once more. The popularity of ex-military leaders with strongman personas such as Prabowo Subianto has also led scholars to think that there seems to be a nostalgia for a more militaristic style of leadership among the public. Are we witnessing the return of the military in Indonesian politics? To discuss these issues further, I recently had a Skype conversation with Dr. Jess Melvin. Dr. Melvin is a historian who is currently a postdoctoral associate at the Sydney Southeast Asian Centre at the University of Sydney. Her first book, The Army and the Indonesian Genocide, Mechanics of a Mass Murder, was published in early 2018 by Routledge. Jess, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Your research has uncovered previously unknown military involvement in the 1965-66 anti-communist killings, which is the basis for your book. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your research and also its implications to what we currently understand regarding Indonesia's anti-communist and military history.
1: Sure, Um, I think it's a very good time to be talking about what happened in 1965. It's a a moment we've sort of, we're seeing there, it's been 20 years since the the fall of the new order. but also sort of 53 years since the the New Order came to power. And we're sort of realising more and more that there's yet to be a sort of historical reckoning, not only um, of how the killings occurred, but also of how the New Order regime itself came to power and the fact that, you know, in 1965 on the 1st of October was in fact uh, the military that implemented a coup. And this sort of... uh, forgotten history produces this sort of historical amnesia um, and you're mentioning mentioning about this idea of um, nostalgia today mm-hmm. in Indonesia I mean, we don't see perhaps a desire an open desire for a return to a military dictatorship um, but we do I think see you know a step back um, in democracy in Indonesia. we see, it's sort of rise of intolerance and rise of this sort of flirting with authoritarianism and the rise of populist right-wing Islam and people asking, like you mentioned, um, is this sort of a neo-new order? And perhaps being able to look more carefully at some of this history and especially um, the impunity um, that continues from that period will help us understand not only the past for its own sake, but also what's happening today in Indonesia.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Can I just ask you, Jess, so when you first embarked on this on this research, it must have been a really exciting research for you to embark on because it pretty much challenges everything that was taught to school children in history books about the events of what
1: happened in 1965 and 66. Definitely, and it's, it's quite amazing how much has changed in just the last 10 years, so over the time that I have been looking at what happened um, in 1965. So when I started research uh, for for this project when I was still an undergraduate, the question was at that time, um, was it possible to prove that the military had even been involved in the killings? We still had the military's official propaganda account being the dominant propaganda account, this idea of the killings being spontaneous Um, and over that time, that question has now evolved. It's now possible to prove the military's involvement, but to also go much further than that, to demonstrate the military's intent behind the violence um, and command responsibility stretching right down from Sahato at the top in Jakarta to the village level, um, where the, the killings were actually carried out. And we're looking at um, you know, the mobilisation of the entire state, to this killing machine, essentially, to carry out the military's... what they described as an annihilation campaign. And the question that we're looking at now is um, not was the military responsible, but is it possible to prove that the killings were actually implemented as a coordinated national campaign? And also, as part of that, um, is it possible to prove that the military um, carried out a coup as part of this process, where we're looking really at... Um, the intention of the military behind its actions at that time right, and looking so, at it in a different way. So your case study was in Aceh, is that right? That's correct, yes. Right. And so what did you find uh, specific to Aceh? So um, when, I, when I first th- went there, I'd been working in Aceh after the tsunami there. And um, when I first went to look at what happened, my question was fairly basic. Um, I'd heard about the 1965 killings and I wanted to know what had happened in Aceh. And I thought I could go to the the library and open a book and find out. And I realised very quickly that not only um, did we not know what had happened in Aceh, um, we also didn't know really what had happened nationally. So I um, began by um, going back to Aceh and interviewing eyewitnesses from that period, speaking with um, people whose family members had been killed, but also with perpetrators of that violence, so members of death squads, but also... um, military personnel and former government officials. And then I had a very significant breakthrough. I was sent an amazing document by one of my colleagues, uh, Douglas Cameron, which was a complete yearly report for the ACHE uh, military command the in 1965. And it became um, apparent you where know, one of the other questions from this time was whether the military had even, you know, sent any orders or had kept records of the killings. It became apparent that, yes, um, the military had been keeping very close um, records of what happened in 1965. So knowing that that had been produced, I went back again. I went into the archives in Banda Aceh, and I asked to look at the documents from that time, and that was um, when I came across um, the 3,000 pages of... um, documents produced by the military during the time of the genocide. They're known now as the Indonesian Genocide Files. So those were some of the... the documents that I was able to get my hands on.
0: Right. So this also, you know, implic not just about Aceh. I know your, your, your field work was in Aceh, but this has national implications then about the, the military's, you know, coordinating role throughout the country.
1: Definitely. I mean, the documents are from Aceh. That is a fluke of nature. I don't know how it just so happens that that is where we've got the most detailed documents. This sort of detail of document has not been discovered anywhere else right. in Aceh, um, yeah. in, in Indonesia, to this date. But they tell us, obviously, about what happened in Aceh. They tell us about the role of the Aceh military commander. They tell us about how he implemented the killings right down to the village level. But they also, through the records that they um, they have and the sort of the orders that you can trace through these documents, they show the national chain of command behind the killings. They show um, orders um, from Sahato, down to the inter-regional military command level at the Sumatra level. Um, so we see the killings being implemented regionally, with Sumatra being treated as a block. And there's reasons for why this occurred um, based on the way that the Indonesian military is structured. Um, but it's actually, yes, it's possible to show this chain of command um, from the, the national level to the inter-regional military level, to the provincial level, and down to the district and sub-district and, village level. Wow. So we see a very detailed picture of the way that the killings were actually implemented. So I'm curious, Jess,
0: with with such um, amazing historical findings and, and, and a real breakthrough about how we uh, uh, can understand what happened in 1965 and also the military's complicity in, in the entire thing, what has been the reaction towards your work, uh, especially coming from Indonesia and from Indonesian readers as well?
1: I've had um, a lot of people who are interested in accessing the, the information and the documents. And um, I've heard from people who are also involved in similar sort of research. I think there's quite a lot of um, research at the moment, people trying to go out and speak to um, survivors and eyewitnesses from this period, yeah. but also to try and find similar sorts of documents, because I'm sure that they exist. It's a question of (laughs) how, how securely they are being stored.
0: What about in terms of getting eyewitness accounts to corroborate some of the findings that you found from the documents, considering that this is still a
1: taboo topic in Indonesia? Were people resisted or even defensive? Well, there's this sort of strange double narrative that occurs, that if you ask people who um, were alive in 1965, they remember what happened. Um, if you speak to people who were members of the government or who were uh, members of political organisations that were in coalition with the military, the likelihood is that they participated in this annihilation campaign. Um, there were orders from the military ordering civilians to participate in the annihilation campaign. So people have a lived experience of what this was like. And it's possible to speak to people about that. It's not necessary to go in and say, look, I think this is terrible. Um, You can ask people about what happened during that time and they can talk about it um, in a sort of possibly different way.
0: May of this year marks the 20th anniversary of Reformasi, and one of the big demands of Reformasi uh, when it first started in 1998 was to try to get the military to be more accountable uh, and be more transparent about some of these historical wrongdoings, particularly about the killings of 1965 and sixty six. But despite promises by virtually all of the post suharto presidents in the last 20 years to look into the past and to at least give answers to the victims' families, we've seen very little in terms of actually um, having proper investigation into military abuses in the past, let alone bringing any of the perpetrators to justice. Now, in light of all this, can I ask you to reflect a little bit about where you think we are now? Have there been enough reforms in the military, particularly in terms of reckoning with its past? And what are some of the recent trends that you've noticed in terms of the military's involvement in society and governance?
1: There's definitely been reforms. I mean, the military has um, been forced to step back from participation in um, political life in Indonesia, one of the major demands of the reformising movement was yeah. that was successful. Yeah. Um, but we see sort of the inching back of the military. and We see that in the, the recent anti-terrorism um, uh, legislation. And I think the military knows that it cannot um, return to power in the way that it was in 1965. Yeah. But the structures are still there. Um, And we need to um, be aware of those. And I think the other thing is, um, you you asked how successful Rafa Masi has been. In 1998, the magazines were covered in pictures demanding that Suharto would go on trial, that there would be this sort of uncovering of the crimes of the New Order period, that this, of course, was something that was going to happen. And in the last 20 years, I mean, there's been some attempts at that, but really are stepping away from that in the last few years and just the last few days, last Thursday, a rather cynical attempt by um, Jokowi to keep the um, Kamisan protesters on side while not doing anything. We have the Attorney-General saying that he's not going to investigate these crimes. And so we have this problem of impunity, and I think the problem is that the Indonesian state cannot investigate what happened in 1965 because it goes straight to the top. It implicates the entire state. If you do seriously investigate what happened in 1965, you're going to see potentially the entire um, House of Cards fall down. And that's not something that um, the government or any other element of the Indonesian state is willing to do without very serious political prodding for it to do so.
0: I want to unpack this a little bit further and explore the potential connection between this lack of acknowledgement and the culture of impunity that has persisted in the last 20 years with what is happening today. Do you think there is a link here between the military not having had to deal with the consequences of its past and also narratives about the military being unchallenged even in the post suharto era? With the fact that the military today is still seen as an important pillar of society and continue to be relied upon, even with a sense of nostalgia for a time when they played a much more involved role in the maintenance
1: of law and order and in governance. It's a very good question. And I mean I think it's I think it's significant that there are calls for um, you know the reinstatement of a military. Dictatorship. That's not what I think Indonesian people are looking for. There's still an um, acknowledgement that parliamentary democracy is a, is a good thing. But there is this sort of um, looking for something else. We had the dreams of reformasi, but they haven't really come to bear in the way that people hoped. Um, there is um, democratic media, there's democratic space. Um, but, you know inequality is in Indonesia is um, the worst um, in Southeast Asia. It's there's the sixth most um, unequal in terms of um, wealth disparity um, in the world. That's what Oxfam has just come out with a report. Um, so there's those sort of problems that have to be grappled with, but there's no real political opposition to sort of Um, put that into a more sort of progressive um, framework, perhaps. There was hopes that Jokowi might be able to to do that, Um, that perhaps people are starting to to step away from him. At the moment, he's not perhaps living up to some of those ideals. And we see sort of a coalition forming between the military and this sort of right-wing populist Islam at the moment yeah um, which is providing that sort of alternative narrative for what Indonesia perhaps could become.
0: Do you see the same rationale then, perhaps explaining why in the last few years, particularly with the rise of Prabowo Subianto from the 2014 presidential election, emerging as this kind of alternative leader that presents a more militaristic style, a more authoritarian style of leadership that perhaps many regard to be a better model for a
1: leader in Indonesia? Yes, and perhaps also, I mean the military for all those problems is, um, efficient. Um, you look at, um, the, the politicians and we see rampant corruption, um, mismanagement and, you know, perhaps, you know, if no one else can do the job properly, maybe some of these strong men will get the job done. Um, so
0: I so I want to pick up on the point that you mentioned before about you know, the, the military's uh, growing influence in, in not just in society but also potentially in, in law enforcement in anti-terrorism efforts um, you mentioned before uh, with the introduction of the anti-terror law um, that was just passed through Parliament about two weeks ago um, and many um, are worried that this uh, also can signal the military's uh, return to law enforcement, you know, one of the reforms in the post-Suharto era was the separation um, of the police from the armed forces. But now, um, I want you to um, perhaps um, share some of your thoughts about um, what you think about the anti-terrorism law and the military's potential ro- role in anti-terror efforts in Indonesia. And is it dangerous to involve the military in in these kind of efforts again?
1: Yes. So yeah, the the major problem with the the anti-terrorism laws. Lots of people have commented. Is this sort of um, reinsertion of the military into domestic operations, and it's a very dangerous um, proposition. It was part of the. The problem with the Indonesian military is the way that it is focused domestically through you know, the territorial warfare structure that a lot of people outside of Indonesia are shocked to understand that that's the way that the military is structured and the capability that it has to actually intervene at the local level. It's very real. Um, so we have sort of the door opening for the military to begin to operate um, in domestic operations. And, of course, anti-terrorism is the... the the umbrella that's being used to enable this to occur, but also other um, changes such as, you know, um, the ability for law enforcement to um, Mm. detain people without charge, um, to keep people in jail for up to 200 days, a doubling of what was previously possible. So sort of the stretching of of what is possible. And it would appear um, that it is dangerous to democracy in Indonesia if this is allowed to continue.
0: The military has certainly proven itself to be very resilient in changing times and also actually quite adaptable in terms of its narrative over the years. Another thing that I do want to touch on is this new phenomenon that we've been seeing in the last two years, particularly since the events of Jakarta last year, where seemingly there's this closer relationship between the military or at least elite current and former members of the military with hardline Muslim groups and conservative factions of political Islam. For instance, nearing his retirement last year, a former Armed Forces Commander Gatot Normantio was seen to be uh, becoming more friendly with um, hardline Muslim groups, even the FBI. And more recently, only this week, Prabowo Subianto, of course himself a former military general, together with Amin Rais during their pilgrimage to Mecca, when and saw Rizik Shihab, the now fugitive leader of the FBI, currently in hiding in Saudi Arabia. What are we seeing here? Are we seeing a closer relationship between the military and more conservative Islamist factions? And why do you think this is the case?
1: Is there a historical precedence to this? Yes, it's it's very interesting that we have Prabowo going to Mecca and wanting to be seen on on Twitter, shaking hands with Habib Rizik, um, who, you know, even 10 years ago was seen as um, a petty gangster sort of figure, Um, but now representing this mass movement in Indonesia and also Amin Rice going there and this declaration now of um, this coalition, Koalisi Umatan, this sort of crystallisation, of this partnership between uh, the retired general um, and um, FBE and some of these Islamist parties, Um, is it strange? There's certainly some questioning within um, Habib Rizik's camp as to what are the intentions of um, figures like Prabowo. There was a a quote by by someone in the Jakarta Post the other day um, commenting about how... um, uh, when when he had been at university, he had been um, lectured by um, Amin Rice who warned him not to um, get involved in New Order types um, because, you know, they had stabbed uh, political Islam in the back when the New Order had came had come to power. But we do see this sort of pattern developing of the military turning to right-wing Islam. Yes. So we have that uh, at the moment, the attempt to oust um, Ahok and now... The idea is that this will be turned against Jokowi. FBE, of course, was formed in 1998 to help crush the reformasi Movement. So we have that link there. And the question about, you know, was FBE in fact established or supported by the military at that time? We know that it was used um, to crush um, pro-democracy movements, but also to attack HAM as they did just recently as well. But also in 1965, the military also... Um, turned to right-wing Islam to have um, the Kaaba the really, to implement the killings. But they couldn't come out and say, you know, we need to implement these killings because the Indonesian Communist Party is our, our political rival and we want to come to power, so we need to destroy them. Um, the message was that um, you need to kill the PKI because they're atheists. And it became a religious issue. This was a way of the, the military um, explaining the killings, but also, I think, mutating the responsibility for what actually happened in 1965. Because you have the people who participated um, feeling as if, you know, they had, it, it was a religious holy war rather than, you know, state Um, sponsored massacre that occurred. Um, So we do see this pattern emerging. It's it's strange, but it's not the first time that this partnership has occurred. And I guess the danger is, you know, where is this partnership heading today?
0: Talking about the potential for the military to re-enter politics, and particularly through electoral politics, some observers have noticed that In this year's Pilkada or the regional elections, we've been seeing quite a number of ex-military names um, at various levels from the provincial level down to the district and town levels as candidates. And there are even talks now of military elites such as Gatot Normantio potentially entering the election in 2019 as a VP or even a presidential candidate. How do you see this return of the military to the political fold?
1: I think it's definitely a potential, and it's also who is capable of running these campaigns. It takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of support, and it's figures like that that have the backing, institutional backing, and perhaps the resources too, um, to even be able to sort of put themselves forward as candidates.
0: It's definitely interesting times now and particularly upon reflection as well of 20 years of reform and of military reform. It's great to have been able to talk about some of these issues with you from a historical perspective. So Jess Melvin, thank you very much for joining me on this episode.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. It was nice to have a chat.
0: That was Dr. Jess Melvin. She is a postdoctoral associate at the Sydney Southeast Asian Centre at the University of Sydney. Her first book, The Army and the Indonesian Genocide, Mechanics of a Mass Murder, was published in early 2018 by Routledge and is now available. Talking Indonesia will return on the 21st of June. Remember that you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.